You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, Bay Area Rapid Transit emerges from a pandemic-induced slumber, providing a critical lifeline to low-income workers. 51% of those riders reported their income under $50,000, and that is a major shift from the previous survey done two years prior, where only 26% of those reported income under $50,000. And then Really notable was the fact that 23% of those surveyed said that they would not have made the trip if BART were not available. So that means that almost one in four of those riders were on there because they had no other way to get where they needed to go. I'm Mel Baker, filling in for Laura Wenis. This is Civic. Before we get started... At the Public Press, which is Civic's parent organization, we've been working really hard during this pandemic to pursue angles we're not seeing much coverage of elsewhere, or to take a more systemic look at the issues that are surfacing in the headlines. The San Francisco Public Press is a nonprofit, and we're inspired by the public radio model. That's the idea that people who are able to support the work that we do so everyone can have access to it without paywalls or ads. If you think we're onto something, we'd very much appreciate if you could show your support. You can do that by going to sfpublicpress.org slash donate or by helping us get the word out about this show. Subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use or leave us a review. It really does help. So thanks. Bay Area Rapid Transit, or BART, has basically been in a coma during the COVID pandemic when rides fell as low as 4% of pre-pandemic levels, a major blow for a transit agency that relies on the fare box for two-thirds of its operating revenue. Ridership is slowly returning, and BART is increasing the number and frequency of trains for the state's official post-pandemic reopening on June 15th, with plans to return hours of service to its pre-pandemic schedule by August 30th. To tell us more about BART's plans and how the agency has survived the pandemic is BART Media Relations Manager, Jim Allison. Jim, welcome to Civic. Thank you very much. There's a lot going on with BART, and I promise we'll let everyone know what they can expect to see in the way of service when uh, they come back in the coming months. But first, I want to take a look at what COVID has done to the agency. I just mentioned that ridership has dipped as low as 4% above that now. How many people are riding on a BART train on an average day today? Well, it didn't dip quite to 4%. It was um, definitely a a major dip to the 10% levels. Um, We're back up to about 20% of what we were before the pandemic. And in terms of raw numbers, that means uh, between 60 and 70,000 people on a weekday. So compare that to above 400,000 trips on a previous weekday during before the pandemic. So we're um, slowly regaining ridership and, and we're happy to see that happen, but we're not anywhere near where we were before the uh, coronavirus hit us. I think I was mentioning that 4% was just immediately like in March of last year during the start of the pandemic. So Right. When the, the shelter in place um, went into effect, obviously the entire Bay Area really shut down. And uh, so that was uh, really ripping the Band-Aid off at one time. Yes. So in November, we interviewed BART board member Janice Lee, and she spoke about how the Congressional CARES Act during the Trump administration helped stabilize the agency last year. 
but the BART was still facing some serious red ink this coming fiscal year. And now, of course, we have the uh, Biden administration and the COVID relief bill put some more money into into BART to help out. What are BART's finances looking like as we go into the coming fiscal year? Well, without the federal funding, we simply wouldn't be able to continue to operate without uh, major changes, including layoffs. So we are extremely grateful for um, lawmakers and the administration for um, providing us the lifeline. But the long-term financial outlook is not good. Um, We are facing uh, deficits for the foreseeable future. And um, although the board members like uh, Director Lee are working really hard to find ways to um, bridge that budget gap, we've, we're, um, we're going to have to really carefully manage um, the budget. Um, and a lot of it depends on, you know, the, how much um, people return to work from the work from home scenario. So, so there's a lot of uncertainty. And um, um, the financial outlook is challenging, but um, obviously we're working hard to make sure that we can provide service uh, for the Bay Area. That's something that's really peculiar about American public transit is that the governments really kind of demand that these agencies run almost, you know, the majority of their budgets are on the fare box. And most other nations treat their public transit systems as public services. And so a lot of that budget comes elsewhere. And so that's got to be a real challenge that BART has to generate so much of its operating revenue just from the fare box. Right. And I would say that if the pandemic has done one thing, it has uh, certainly maybe uh, provided a different look at how the financial um model that we we pursue in the future there might be a paradigm shift where we're seen as more uh, as an essential service that deserves a dedicated revenue stream rather than as you say relying on customers to come to the system so certainly you know we've we've heard about um, muni exploring fare free public transportation so who knows what that will mean in 20 30 years from now but certainly this is going to be a, a bookmark in time to see, does this financial model work in the future or, or should we look at something different? During that period when only 10% of ridership was going, it was still providing a critical, vital service because a lot of the people that we uh, mark as essential, everything from healthcare workers to uh, people that were keeping our grocery stores open, those sorts of essential folks that didn't have access to cars or what have you, needed to use BART to get around. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like during those that period when you were just having such a small number of riders and yet you still needed to maintain a fleet of operators to keep the system operating? Uh, two things that I want to say right off the top about that is, number one, um, I just have to really um, acknowledge the tremendous dedication and sacrifices that our frontline workers made during that period. Um, these are um, union folks who showed up to work every day. Um, they took a personal risk in terms of their health to, to come and make sure that we had service. 
and they really answered the call. Our attendance rate was phenomenal. I don't have the numbers right off the top of my head, but there was not any shrinking back from the challenge at hand. And number two, our leadership, uh, like the elected board of directors and our senior management, really um, recognized the fact that we needed to provide service to those who had no other choice. And so that's why we did trim the hours and we did um, reduce the frequency of trains, but we were adamant about continuing to provide train service seven days a week for as much of the day as we could. And we learned some interesting things when we did our customer satisfaction survey on, in 2020, um, in the fall of 2020. And what we learned is that um, 51% of those um, riders reported their income under $50,000. And that is a major shift from the previous survey done two years prior, where only 26% of those reported income under $50,000. And then really notable was the fact that 23% of those surveyed said that they would not have made the trip if BART were not available. So that means that you know, almost one in four of those riders were on there because they had no other way to get where they needed to go. So that's why I say that perhaps in the future, public transportation will be looked at as a essential and essential service. That's the way we consider ourselves. Just as you turn on the faucet and water is there, public transportation should be there for people who have no other options. And this is a, a long answer, but um, I'll just throw in one more thing that, that we, from the outset, when we tried to um, encourage lawmakers to provide federal funding, we were conveying the fact that for people who have no other choice but to use public transportation to get where they need to go, if that were not there, it would create a second class of citizenship, a mobility divide. There would be people who would be shut out of opportunities simply because they could not afford or chose not to purchase a vehicle. So I think those are really important things from a social equity standpoint and just the greater all public good. You know, not everybody has a car, but they need to go places. So that's the bottom line. So to get back to your original question, the um, dark days of the first months of the pandemic were uh, very challenging, but we feel we met the challenge and thankfully, um, you know, we had federal funding to keep us afloat. So going forward, you're actually in the process of gearing up, uh, adding trains back as we speak, moving toward June 7th, a pretty big increase, and then toward as part of this process of the state's reopening on June 15th. Talk about how you're adding back service during this next few weeks. Well, more people are returning to BART, and we want to be there to serve them and to provide better service than we have in the past um, months. So the first uh, change is going to be um, taking place, as you say, in the beginning of June. And so we're going to be adding 26 additional trips during the weekday. Uh, and that, what that means is a, a, um, we're doubling the number of 15-minute frequencies during the weekday so that you're going to have more frequent service during the weekdays. And then we're going to have more trips on Saturday as well. We've noticed our weekend ridership is coming back too. Uh, we haven't provided real good service on the uh, weekends during the pandemic, and we recognize that. 
So we're taking steps to, um, to address that. And so the first step is to add some additional trips on Saturday to make it easier for people to get around on the weekends. And then our next big change will be uh, August 30th, when we're really trying to get back to almost pre-pandemic levels of service. So currently, weekends 8 a.m. to 9 p.m., weekdays 5 a.m. to 9 p.m.? That's correct, yes. And then uh, August 30th, you're going to go back to 5 a.m. to midnight for yes. weekdays, and then well, there's a staggered weekend. Yeah, Saturdays will be 6 to midnight. And then the, the Sunday hours are going to remain the same for now. After June 15th, people will still have to wear masks. They're going to be asking people to wear masks at least through September 15th. So you shouldn't plan on discarding. You're going to still need to want to be carrying a mask and putting a mask on when you come in the system after June 15th through at least mid-September. That's correct. We're following the TSA guidelines, uh, which uh, for transportation, public transportation, still require masks. So we're, we're asking that our our riders um, honor that. Now, you were just starting to roll out more of these new BART cars back before the start of the pandemic. There were just a few in the system then. How many more of those cars have you been able to add into the system? What percentage of the fleet uh, are now made up of the newer BART train cars? Uh, I don't have the exact numbers right off the top of my head. It's around um, 280. And so in terms of what passengers are seeing, the majority of the service hours are now provided by the new trains. So that is a, a big step. Now, what we did in December is we paused delivery from the manufacturer because we were having um, some problems. The two problems were software related, um, which meant that um, the automatic train control system on board those train cars was not functioning the way we wanted to. And then also the wheels, there's actually steel wheels on the train cars uh, were uh, getting flat spots. So the good news is that we have pretty much solved all of the software problems. Um, the wheel flats we're still working on, but we told the manufacturer, don't send us any new cars until we get this all squared away. Once you do, then we'll, we'll ramp up the delivery of those train cars. But, um, yeah, so the majority of the trips that are being taken now are on the new train cars. I'm speaking with BART Media Relations Manager Jim Allison. You're listening to Civic. So Janice Lee, a BART board member, told us one challenge the system has is that a lot of the infrastructure is just truly old. I mean, especially some of your computer systems. Actually, you're still using floppy disks and the like. When you're talking about the infrastructure of BART, where is the system standing on that, and has all of the financial challenges impacted any of the capital improvements you're working on to upgrade the infrastructure for BART? But also the construction going on, adding the new stations in the South Bay that are going to link San Jose to the BART system. Well, we do have two new um, stations that opened in uh, June of last year um, in Milpitas and Berryessa in North San Jose, and then the Valley Transportation Authority, um, who has um, the political authority to do so, is um, working on the second phase of that extension. So that that's kind of um, uh, one aspect of the answer. The other, and quite frankly, more importantly right now, a more immediate concern, is uh, rebuilding BART. 
And this is something that we recognized, um, you know, as far back as 10 years ago, that we would need to do some major reinvestment in the current system. And I'm happy to say that we're um, in our fourth year of the Measure RR funded projects to rebuild the system. And this was a, um, a tremendous vote of confidence we got from voters who authorized BART to issue $3.5 billion in bonds to rebuild the existing system. And I can tell you that so far we've um, replaced 32 miles of um, worn rail. We've retrofitted, um, we've reprofiled actually 149 miles of track to make it more smooth and less noisy for both riders and, uh, and the neighbors. And we've done a lot of critical work in the Transbate tube as well to make that more resilient to um, earthquakes and, and just some of the normal wear and tear. So we've got um, quite a bit of work ahead, but we've done a lot of work. And if the pandemic has um, had one positive element, it's the fact that because of our um, shorter operating window, the, the shorter amount of time that we carried passengers, that gave um, all the crews more time to do work when trains weren't operating on the system. So we've accelerated a lot of the capital projects. So um, Director Lee was was quite right in uh, saying that, you know, we've got some old technology and, and old um, equipment out there, but the good news is that we're working every single day to get it back up to where it needs to be. Has having that older technology, especially with the computer systems, made it more challenging to integrate with some of these newer rail cars? And uh, just uh, how hard is it to integrate some of those systems that go back to the to the 1980s with technology we use now? Well, our legacy fleet uh, cars, which are the um, original cars um, that you see out there, yeah, it, it is difficult to get some of the parts because of the, you know, the fact that technology has changed so much from 1972 until now. The good news is that our new uh, fleet of the future cars are basically state of the art. And so moving forward, that will be less of an issue. But until re we retire the legacy fleet, um, which would be within the next two to three years, we'll get rid of all the old cars. But until we do, yeah, we, we still have challenges. Um, you know, there's kind of a um, an apocryphal story about um, our maintenance folks going on eBay and looking up the right tube to put into a, a certain electronic component. And so um, that, has, that, that has been the case um, within the past five years or so, but it's becoming less of an issue. Now, more of an issue, I would say, is um, our capacity limitations. The number of trains that we can get through the Transbay tube is limited by our train control system. The train control system um, simply is a computer program that makes sure that everything is safe and it will um, limit the number of trains that can be in a certain section of track at the same time. So. We're moving to a new communications-based train control system that will allow us to um, increase by about 20% the number of trains that we'll be able to get through the Transbay tube um, at any one time. 
So those are um, some constraints that we have right now, but that we're working to address. I would have to say that, um, you know, I kind of keep an eye on all the other transit agencies. And I would say that, and I'm not just um, um, <laughs> buttering up my bosses, but the, um, the BART has really done a, a good job at looking ahead and acknowledging the challenges that lay ahead and finding ways to um, resolve those challenges. You know, just before the pandemic, uh, BART had also been working on modifying fare gates to prevent people from entering the system without paying. Yes. Were you, was any work being done during the pandemic on that? And will people be seeing any changes in the system to some of the fare gates? And if so, in what stations? Uh, so the short answer to that is yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, on both counts. Um, at our next board meeting, which um, will take place later in June, um, we're going to have an update on the next generation Fairgate um, project. And so what we've done is we've um, tested a couple of different options for retrofitting the Fairgates to make it more difficult for those who choose to get into the system without paying to do so. And um, the, um, the Richmond station has been the focal point of that. And so um, I don't have the, the full report of what's going to be um, presented to the board later this month, but certainly listeners can tune into the board meeting and, and watch it live or watch it later on demand to find out what the latest with that project is. Um, one of the major, um, major challenges, of course, is finding money to pay for those fare gates. And so we're, we're on two tracks there, if you will. One is the technology. What, what are we going to do to make it harder to fare evade? And number two, how are we going to pay for it? Well, the good news is that um, our current administration is much more transit friendly. And we have a really good uh, Bay Area congressional delegation. So there might be some uh, hope there that we would get some help to, to pay for those new fare gates. One issue that's always been a challenge is uh, unhoused people using BART stations and trains for shelter. How has the transit agency developed? Have you developed any new strategies to help people out that need the care, uh, need care and how to integrate them with people that can, that can assist them and, and to help them? Yeah, that's a really great question. And obviously, um, the, the crisis extends well beyond BART, um, but um, we're not able to ignore it in any way, nor should we. And so what we've done is, number one, um, we're putting more uh, police services professionals out in our system who are not armed, they are not sworn officers. We have crisis intervention specialists who will be joining our team and they will be better, better able to help uh, people who have um, mental health issues or substance abuse issues um, in situations without adding the element of a armed police officer. And then the number two thing that we've done is to actually hire a person whose full-time job is to deal with uh, those, uh, the, the, the crisis of homelessness uh, and how it relates to BART. And so um, that person uh, actually just started two weeks ago. So they're just getting up to speed, but um, it will be 
uh, that person's full-time job to look at what we can do to contribute to the solution and not simply try to um, move people out of our system to make it convenient for those of us who are fortunate to have housing. So we want to be part of a holistic approach to this. And um, it's not easy by any means, but, um, but it's not something that we're going to shy away from. It's certainly a big challenge for one person to try to come up with something considering that you sprawl over multiple counties and multiple jurisdictions. And so I guess that's a step in the right direction. Um, right. We, you know, we would hope that we um, would get more help from the counties, but uh, obviously they're um, overwhelmed as well, uh, dealing with the scope of this um, issue. And, and, um, and third, I would say that, that um, you know, I should really point out that we're very proactive in terms of um, addressing the crisis in affordable housing, that we are uh, doing everything we can. We've got a whole team of people who are working on transit-oriented developments. That means developments that are real close to our stations and making sure that a significant portion of those are affordable. So um, it's not just um, dealing with the individuals who are unhoused, but also the deeper underlying crisis of housing affordability in the Bay Area that we're dealing with. You, or one might think that BART just operates trains, but we're so much more when, when you um, look at the big picture. So um, that's, that's our challenge and that's our mission. Well, you have property sites near, you know, with large parking areas that you manage and, and a lot of that's being turned into, into housing. And so, you, yeah, you, you manage a lot. The, the, here's a, you know, this is obviously got to be something that's weighing on your employees and, and on everyone is the recent mass shooting at uh, the Valley Transit Authority. That's got to have been a shock to many of your workers, and it certainly got to have brought up your BART's own preparations for what you would do to, to deal with security threats like that, mass shooting events or something. How is BART prepared for something like that that could be in the way of a lone gunman or a terror attack? How has your system trained to deal with something like that, and how would you manage that? Uh, well, uh, first, let me just say it, it's just heartbreaking uh, for those who have been affected at VTA. Uh, you know, we have a very close relationship with VTA. Um, I, on a personal level, know uh, people who, um, you know, were, were deeply touched by that shooting. And so just my condolences to, to everyone in the VTA family. Uh, but to answer your question, um, number one, we have um, our own police force and part of their mission is uh, to protect employees. So they patrol our maintenance facilities um, you know, in person and they also have a very um, robust uh, camera system uh, to monitor the situation. Um, the um, those maintenance yards are accessible only to those who um, whose employee badges are coded to provide access. So someone who works in our administrative headquarters would not have access to, say, the Hayward maintenance facility. And um, all of our um, maintenance yards are enclosed. Uh, now, in terms of the specific situation of VTA, you know, you have an employee who um, who 
turn to violence against his own co-workers. And so I would say that um, we, you know, are very upfront about uh, providing mental health um, treatment for those who seek it out um, and, and encourage um, supervisors to monitor and maintain good relationships with their employees. I'm not saying that VTA didn't, but um, just the preventive side is so much um, more important than, than we may realize in our day-to-day -day tasks. And then in terms of actually responding to an incident like that, we have a um, BART-specific training that we are required to take. Um, it's a video that teaches us how to respond in such a situation like that. And it, 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 um, the video has real BART employees in real BART facilities um, responding to um, these scenarios. So, so we do train for it and we do have um, security in place. But in, uh, unfortunately, in the world we live in, um, there's no guarantee. So I would just say that um, it was a uh, tremendously tragic situation that um, does weigh heavily on our minds. All right, Jim, thank you very much for joining us on Civic. My pleasure, Mel. I've been speaking to Jim Allison, BART Media Relations Manager. I'm Mel Baker filling in for Laura Wenis. You've been listening to Civic. Civic is produced at KSFP LP 102.5 FM in San Francisco. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Our team includes producer and contributor Mel Baker and assistant producer Liana Wilcox. KSFP is a project of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative newsroom. Find our reporting at sfpublicpress.org. Civic airs Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 FM. Thanks for listening.